So our first guest is uh, Paula Stokes. And Paula's story was fascinating because she has come up with a project uh, that involves something you never think to combine with um, the particular type of art that Paula does. Um, Paula, can I show the, the, the video? This project, titled 1845, is a famine memorial dedicated to the Irish potato famine. I am creating an installation made of 1,845 hand-blown glass potatoes that are piled into the form of a kern. The kern form is a pile of stones, often serving as a landmarker, but in this case it suggests a burial monument, and instead of stones, I am piling potatoes. The number of the potatoes, 1,845, references the year when the potato blight came to Ireland, marking the beginning of a period of mass starvation, disease and emigration. Over one and a half million people died and a further one million emigrated. I chose to create a representation of the potato, a classic and iconic symbol associated with Ireland, using molten hot glass. The potato form is made from clear glass that is then sandblasted. The absence of colour is intentional. The result is a recognisable form of the potato that in its stark whiteness looks like a ghost of the living form. It is a memento mori that serves as a reminder of mortality. Working in glass requires teamwork. My glass community is very close and we often collaborate with one another to create each other's work. In the process of this project, I've been contacted by other artists working in glass who want to participate and contribute their time in making the work for me in their own studios. They do this to honour their ancestors who emigrated from Ireland to America. Once I started blowing the work, I quickly realised I would need a lot of help if I was going to finish the work in a reasonable time. I could make 60 potatoes in a day with one other person. Altogether, it took over 500 hours and 18 people to make the 1,845 potatoes. We did this over the course of a year. In creating this work, I throw light on historical events that have shaped the present and hoping to open a dialogue on how we can learn from the past. My plan is to show this work in different venues in America and ultimately in Ireland. You work in glass. Paula, tell me your story of, of being an artist. Oh, wow. It's a long, shaggy story. Um, so, well, I'm originally from Ireland. Um, I actually grew up in Navan, County Meath. And uh, I uh, studied uh, at the National College of Art and Design in Dublin. And I specialised in uh, glass design and glass making. And that was back in the early 90s is when I graduated. And, um, and then I moved to America in 1993. I got a, a green card um, through a lottery programme and emigrated to Seattle specifically because um, Seattle actually is a major centre of glass making in the world, um, contemporary art making uh, using glass. And um, I came here really to, to see if I could, you know, make a living uh, with my art degree, which is not often very common. And, um, and, uh, and you know, here I am 27 years later still living here. So um, glass is the medium that I use uh, to um, express my ideas and um, and this specific project, which uh, just to, so other people understand, it's actually um, an installation that I made um, comprised of 1,845 hand-blown glass potatoes. And, um, and essentially what the installation is, is a, it's a memorial to the Irish potato famine. And, um, and I, I made this specifically, and you kind of got a little bit of a sense of how I made it and 
and Donna did the voiceover that I had <laughs> done myself. Um, very good uh, translation, but um, you know, I, I've been working uh, in Seattle for 20, uh, now 27 years, and working for other artists, as uh, many of us do, to make a living. Um, not, uh, not all of us can have the luxury of just being a full-time artist. Um, you always have to kind of supplement your, your income by teaching or working as an assistant, in my case, with other artists who are much more successful than I am, which is fantastic because you get to learn from them as well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's taken me many years to make this specific body of work, but it, it kind of came around, uh, I was, I look, like, I kind of think back to it, about 15 years ago, um, the first kind of kernel of an idea kind of was hatched. And it was at a time when, um, it's been very reflective because I was living in Seattle probably, it was kind of at that tipping point where I was living in Seattle almost as long as I had lived in Ireland. And um, I was kind of made, not that I was sad about it, but it was kind of strange to come to this point in your life where you've lived um, away from home longer than you've ever lived in the country where you came from to begin with. And I wanted to create um, a keepsake of sorts that kind of uh, reminded me of Ireland and kept me connected to Ireland and my Irishness. And, um, and hence, I made about a dozen hand-blown glass potatoes at that time and then just put them away and then revisited the idea almost 13 years later, 15 years later. And um, there was a confluence of things that actually brought me to that point, which I don't need to go into right now, but I knew that if I were, was to make this project, it was, would have to be really big and very ambitious. And um, it was going to take a lot of time and help. And, um, but I was ready at that point. So, um, that's that's kind of where we got to that was kind of the beginning of the project and then you know fast forward uh to now today so um i hope that's succinct <laughs> i could go on ad, ad, ad nauseum <laughs> being it, an irish person it, it doesn't have to be succinct Paula. we have the with the studio here for 14 hours if we wish so, so don't worry about <laughs> it. No. Um, but the whole the whole idea the whole idea of of of, of what art is about for me um certainly certainly in my circumstances just a quick background i mean i'm, I'm recovering from oh, i'm recovering from all sorts of things i'm recovering from living in lurgan itself perhaps but i'm <laughs> i'm recovering i'm recovering from from stroke and all sorts of things and i'm looking for 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 ways of healing and everything and um i see it in in things like art because i either get distracted by art or i or I ponder on art or whatever. It's so important to me in my life and many other people. It's it's crucial to everybody's life. Um, uh, so so that's 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 clearly for me what this is about. Um, just just on that artistic viewing level, but in the historic level and the being from from Ireland kind of level. I mean, is there? Um, um, I'll ask around the room. Maybe this is a good time to to open up that conversation about that in the room. And we're coming from different identities here within the room too. So it's not a question of um, you know one community and in, in our part of the world owns this uh, idea of the fama that um you, you were 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 in a are we are we um, healing from 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 talking about this because that's what strikes me about this even just resonating with her looking at does, it, does anybody have a thought on that um and particularly on the famine because as as uh, as tracy will know i mean we have a uh, famine um graveyards here and we have a big um workhouse that was a a famine um uh, survival unit basically because of the famine anybody any thoughts on that and on, on what that kind of installation would mean to them in terms of the famine 
uh, don't know, just in, uh, in general, the, the, I, the, the famine was such a trauma for Irish people that I feel it's like something we haven't even really dealt with properly. And, you know, the, the, the conversations around the famine and anything that prompts those conversations, I think are a really necessary thing. Um, it's just such a deep trauma in our history that I feel like I personally haven't identified, I haven't really dealt with, you know, I've tried to educate myself about it, but I don't even know where to begin sometimes. So I, I, I really like your work, uh, Paula, and, and, you know, just really interesting stuff. It, um, as a way to represent that, I think it's a really interesting way to, to, just to start that conversation. It, it, it's um, the classic thing they used to say about about um, recovery from the whole idea of the famine was that there was the survivor mentality, that you were a survivor of this and, and to speak about it was a taboo because you couldn't raise it because you were saying, well, how did I get away from this? And there's a certain resonance of that with all, with all of us if we think about it for, for, for any length of time. But any, anybody else, any thought on that um, just before? Well, I might have a different thought, but you know, my own perspective, my background is from the other side and growing up in you know, loyal East Belfast for many, many years, the propaganda would have been that didn't affect the Protestants sort of thing. And this was a, you know, you know, a classic Everything in this wee country where we live now, Donna, is still dominated to this day by sectarian politics. And it's only whenever you delve into it, you see the tragedy. You know, I'm a, I'm a big history buff. I do a lot of, I visit a lot of graves when I go in history, First, Second World War. And you go, like, you go to places in the northern France where there's these mass graves, usually German. And there's like, you know, 150,000 bodies in one place. And I, I was walking around one of those graves once and I thought to myself, there's graves like this in Ireland. Mm. And it was, it was the British state. Well, like, don't want to get too political, but... No, no. Too, too late, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> you know, like, we're coming from... My perspective, like, you know, a, a real history buff, we, we never, we don't teach history in our schools in the North. It's, too, it's, a, it's a hot potato. I've been having that conversation with people this week. They just, they don't teach any modern history to teach us why. It's my daughter. My daughter's in, in university in Dundee. Uh, like most from my background, we, get, we send our kids away and tell them never to come back. That's a, that's a different type of emigrant because the place is so messed up. And every time she comes home, she'll say to me, what's wrong with people here? Why is, it, why is everybody like this? That's because she never learned anything about it in school. That's recent history. But a lot of it can be traced back to this period of time, you know. What, what about you, Tracy, on, on that front? James will come to you. And Kerry? Um, yeah, I, um, sorry, I, I echo a lot, of, um, a lot of what Terry said. Is it also coming from the same side shall we say of the, 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 the <laughs> is that that i always i've always said that as as a northern ireland protestant um although that's not 
how I personally identify, but that, that would be the, the bracket into which I would be put whether I want to or not. Um, but, but being a Northern Ireland Protestant, we were never taught any Irish history. We were never taught Irish history, Irish music, Irish mythology, Irish language, Irish anything. We were never taught any of that. And therefore, to a certain extent, we felt disempowered and, and um, not connected in any way. It was, that was all, that happened to other people. That was, and, and you know, I always sort of, um, as I got older and realized these and started to do my own researches, it was, um, I used to keep my mom going terribly to say that, you know, you do realize that the Northern Ireland Protestant is actually the lost tribe of Israel, you know, um, because essentially nobody else wants us. We're not English. We're not Welsh. We're not Scottish. And by default of the religion into which we were born, we're not really allowed to be Irish. At least that was the perception. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the history that we should be able to link into, we have never, we've never been able to link into that history. So it's, it's where you're talking about there's been a collective trauma for the country um, and for the, the, the nationals of that country, all people born in that country, we all have a, a heritage here, a long heritage here. Um, it's very difficult sometimes when you come from what will be perceived as my side of the community to have to identify there. Those are my observations of it all. It's actually really hard to uh, sort of hook into that. When I first came back, I lived abroad as Donna knows for a long time. And when I first came back, one of the first things I did was I went down to the um, Skinner Centre and, and started to went to a few Irish classes. And and just quickly explain that it's the it's the Skianos is set up in East Belfast in yeah. a in a largely perceived um, loyalist or Protestant yeah. area. It's a full on loyalist area, um, but the Skianos Centre has there's a lady there called Linda Irvine um, who's maybe someone will correct me, Terry. You might be able to correct me here with regard her connection with a is it ex paramilitary or a, a, a certainly a politician. She's a brother. She, she married the brother of probably the only politician that might have led the tribe out of Exodus, uh, Tracy David Irvine. Yeah. Irvine. yeah. And she, a, has, she has become a real advocate for the Irish language and has told, she's written plays, she's written poetry, and she tells the story as well of how it was actually, um, you, you know, a, a number of great Presbyterian ministers who, who helped re-enliven re the language when it was falling, uh, falling away. So there's, there's a lot of shared connections there that we are never taught about, never taught about. And so, and this is part of the perpetuating problem is that we don't have a shared history because we're not invited into the shared history from an from a education point of view. We're not, we're not actually taught those things. James, I want to see if you have a thought on this at the moment, because I want to, I want to tie something together that 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 it doesn't necessarily make sense of it. It makes a nonsense of, of of what has happened because of this. But, um, Jim, what uh, the first thing that struck me with when Paula was speaking was last year I hit the same milestone that you hit, in that I'm now thirty years living in Ireland. Uh, following 30 years being born and brought up in London. 
And if you think you have no education about Irish history here in Ireland, I can assure you that as someone who studied uh, history in England, uh, like Montgomery's army, you're not forgotten. They don't know you exist. And I was reminded uh, when my history teacher asked the class, did they know anything about the Irish famine? A class made up of Irish immigrants, children who have been brought up with horror stories about the famine. And uh, it got to the stage where it was almost like the four Yorkshiremen, you know, you thought you had a famine. Oh God, no, we didn't have a famine, we had a disaster. You didn't have a disaster, oh no, we had an epidemic. And I'm, it's got to the stage almost where it became a kind of a, a set to. I don't think Ireland knows what, what it means about by the famine. And living here in Tralee, that was one of the main centres of Irish emigration. And the Jeannie Johnson ship that I once, they built a replica of about 25 years ago, and I refer to it once as a famine ship. And I was put very firmly in my place that it wasn't a famine ship. Nobody died on that ship going to, uh, going to America. And that was seen as something to boast about. Uh, so as a, an, English, an Englishman now living in Ireland, I find all discussions about the famine. I don't, I don't, I don't think the Ireland knows what the famine really means. And when you see artists like Paula putting a, a physical representation of it, I mean, that's the only way that you're going to begin to get some kind of common ground and understanding. Because the famine, as I said in our, in our history class, at school, it was at the time of Live Aid. So there was the resonance, but there was no actual understanding of how it could happen any more than a famine in Ethiopia that we all contributed to is still going on. Just to come back to and, and tie together some of those uh, my thoughts on on this, and and that's why the that's why this whole um, what you're doing is so important um, that the discussion opens up, whether it's just with five or six of us here, or whether it's a, for a wider community. To me, um, the famine, uh, well, historically they will tell you they whoever they might be uh, will tell you that it was the biggest event that has politicised um, this island to. Um, rebellion and revolution that worked um in that it was without doubt um the the if not the starting point the main point that started the political movements like the fenians and uh, Sinn fein and all of those in the 18 or the 19 uh, 1800s that would later um become the rebellion or the, the 1916 rebellion that would become Ireland being independent, North and South, whatever, it really has its key moments because of, of the famine. And uh, people like John Mitchell writing in the United Irishman in 1848 uh, was given the fuel uh, and wanted to push it further to become a, um, a political, not just a political, but a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? An armed struggle where uh, it got uh, it got um, volume that it didn't get before in 1798 or 1803, and those uh, 1798 and 1803 rebellions, as you probably all know, were 
were pushed by people of the Presbyterian faith as much as any Catholic faith because they had the education and the ability and the desire to do that. And the same with the Irish language. They kept the Irish language alive when no one else was doing so. They, they were in the position to do so and saw the value of that to keep the language alive, was to keep the culture alive, to keep the whole the whole thing together. And hands up, I, I've got three words of Irish and, and they're usually Chucky or La, and that's about the height of it. But at least, at least I know that it's there. So I understand that and, and realize that. And sadly, and it's only in last, and I'd be honest here, in the last 15 or 20 years that I've looked at the famine other than, oh, for goodness sake, those so-and-sos on one political um, side of uh, what goes on in this country have, have tried to take ownership of that, have tried to politicise it for their movement, have tried to politicise it for virtually, if not all, every mo movement taken thereafter. Um, whereas really for me it's it's understanding and then moving on to an understanding and not to carry bitterness with whoever you thought did or didn't uh, were were the protagonists of that for whether they were or whether they weren't because it doesn't help me moving forward and that's the conversation that has to come about for me to change that that you take the bitterness out of that uh, that circumstance, that you're not in the blame game, but that you're in the understanding game and say, well, not alone did it not happen, um, it, it happened to the Catholic population, it happened to the Protestant population, it happened to whoever was on these islands, and nobody has ownership of that grief, but everyone has a responsibility to understand that grief in some way, ask for the healing of that because it has affected us in all sorts if you can say it hasn't affected me but it helped it brought the troubles if you want to if you want to put it that way uh, those sorts of sorts of things maybe that's far too deep anyway meanwhile back at the ranch that's that's my Here, penny's worth a, a, a thing like even though it was badly taught i did do a lot of irish history because i at the a level the population of ireland before the famine was eight million and the population of mainland UK was 16. Mm -hmm. Ireland has still not recovered. Ireland still is still not a million people. And what happened after that was the Industrial Revolution and immigration. A lot of the immigrants never made it to America. You know, a trick question in a pub quiz, what's the capital of Ireland? We all know the answer to that one. Liverpool. New, New York or <laughs> Liverpool or, or Boston or whatever, yeah, absolutely. Liverpool, you know, they didn't, you know, so there was a, it was a catalyst in the Industrial Revolution. Britain went on to greater things. And then it was Irish that built everything over there. You know, it was Irish. It, it, it made us the ultimate wanderers on the planet, did it not? We're all over it. We, you know, there's great statistics that I'll share with you after the thing. I've got a, the, a higher percentage of Irish travel all over the world than any other country in the world. Anywhere, anywhere between thirty-five and, and uh, thirty-five to seventy million, they say diaspora, and we've got two of them in the room here, <laughs> and one previous one. <laughs> uh, Paul, well, what, what has been uh, the response you've been getting from from people who aren't necessarily Irish? I mean, um, Kerry has, has has left us, um, but what, what's what's been the response to you directly from 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 all sorts? It's, it's been very interesting, um, yes, yeah, because you don't have to be Irish to, you know, understand what the, what the subject is. Um, 
And I've had people get quite emotional about it and not angry, but very touched by it because I think it resonates on a very fundamental level. And it's all about, you know, exactly what conversation that we're having today. It's not a Protestant. It's not a Catholic. It's like, it's a human thing, you know, and I, I and that's kind of, that's what I want as well, because I want to kind of break down those barriers and like in the fundamental sense of compassion about like we're all human and you know we all come from somewhere and uh, so that has been really um that's been really uh, gratifying actually just having that sort of response from people and uh, and then people telling their stories it's it's interesting to me because you know i don't have my family we don't have any famine stories you know we never spoke about it and and i had people ask me oh what's your family's history with the famine and i said i, I don't know we've never talked about it um and in that kind of sense of silence there is that shame you know if you're a survivor what did your family do to survive you know because you know what distinguished us from others and you don't even want to go down that path whereas i i have found with american irish um how those stories um definitely have traveled like that sense of identity um is, is very much ingrained um um, with American Irish who say, oh yeah, well, my family came in 18, whatever, they, like, they, they know that and they carry that and they're proud of that. So it's kind of interesting, like those who, who left Ireland um, seem to have more of a connection in some, way, some ways with it or speak about it than those of us who actually grew up in the country. So that's been kind of interesting hearing those stories. And um, yeah, and I think, you know, just the, the, the form in which it's presented, it's, you know, it's really powerful. And I can say that just visually, it's very arresting, and it, but it's very quiet. It's a very quiet piece. Um, but then when you start looking at it, I've had people say, oh my gosh, you know, that, you know, no offense, but they look like skulls to me. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, that's great, because they kind of do the little organic form. And, um, but it makes people very reflective and it kind of touches them in a way that they can, um, they can identify with it and they can understand it and grasp it and in a way that's not um not beating them on the head with it either because it's kind of it's it's not political even though it is political and um, so yeah so i've had just interesting responses and the, like these sort of conversations that we're having right now this is exactly the sort of dialogue i hope to um to provoke and uh, and then hearing different perspectives of people's stories or histories or if they're coming from a science background or if they're coming from an art background how it is unifying and there's a kind of a democracy um, in the access to what the subject matter is and people's connection to it. So I guess that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, I mean, it's spectacular. I've only seen the photographs. Um, um, spectacular uh, in that there are 1,845 of these uh, pieces and they're all, it's like layered as if uh, from, from uh, the middle of the room to the to the back wall as it were and they're lying there on top of each other as if it were apples that have fallen from the box or whatever it might be um yeah. I, I i'm surprised actually i wasn't sure if they were protestant apples or catholic apples but that, it, it's, it, I mean, it's spectacular, but isn't that, isn't that the, the joy of art that it does that? Because it's removed from yourself and that you can make that observation removed from yourself and, 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 and say what you will and think what you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, music uh, allows us to do that a wee bit too. Uh, I just want to uh, bring in uh, young Eamon here, who's a Dublin man. Um, just just before we, we go into talking about yourself here, Eamon, uh, is there much talk of the famine in Dublin? Was it was it um, was it something that you grew up with a conversation about the famine this and the famine the other and our Jimmy's uh, second cousin and all the rest of it? 
No, no, I, we we didn't talk about it, and I think a lot of people that didn't talk about it. Uh, maybe and I, I actually haven't thought about that too much. That part of the reason is the survival guilt, perhaps. Like why did why 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 did we survive? Um, but no, no, it wasn't uh, very much a, a conversation at all. It's something that happened in the past a long time ago. We're moving on. We're modern now, and I, I you know, I feel a lot. I, I wonder about that. Like, it, it's a, I just think it's an interesting question. Like, why is there something in our, in our nature as Irish people that we don't necessarily want to dwell in the past? And does that stop us kind of dealing with, with some of the collective trauma that we've, that we've been through? Well, there is a, a, a theory uh, that sometimes it, it's not necessary literally to, to, to dwell into the past. I mean, I've had the mental health problems and, and the offer is there to go to counselling to deal with the past. I don't need to deal with the past because I kind of realise that I can rewrite the future, that it doesn't inquire, uh, require me to kind of delve deeply into what made what caused me um, to have the, the breakdown, as it were. I actually know that the reason was that I, I, I didn't sleep for five or six weeks so, or five or six days, so, so I kind of know that. But other people find counsel in actually getting a counsellor that, that does help them deal with the past. It's, it, maybe it's different from person to person. Um, as you say, you don't have to. As long as you can somewhere along the way rewrite your future or rewrite, the, not rewrite the present. I don't mean brainwashing yourself to think it didn't happen or, or whatever, but just a, there's a different way of, of writing a more positive future. Maybe a leaning, an eye to the, to the left, to, to, the, to the past, and an eye to the future, and, and, and right down the middle, live your, your best life now. Uh, anyway, that's that, that's just because my take. I, I, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I, I I know exactly what you mean. I for me, I want to I want to understand my my past and the collective past of of Ireland. You know, I think I just think it's a really interesting subject. And in order to to make the future, I feel like you have to you have to deal with the past. You have to actually you know really understand it. That's that's just my instinct about about this subject. And I've feel like as as like I've, I've tried to educate myself about, about the famine as much as I can but even the language around it like it, it was it a famine was you know a genocide and all sorts of things yeah 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 and like these are terms that are thrown around and what's how would you officially term something a genocide and I've you know listened to various history podcasts about that subject and tried to educate it myself but it's I just feel like it's a it's a it's it's a real trauma that we really haven't dealt with so for whatever reason. So so tell us about yourself, uh, Eamon, your your background and 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 uh, your musical background. Sure. Um, so as you say, uh, Dunno was born in Dublin, in north north side of Dublin, Clester, famous for his dart station. Our bars <laughs> dart. Uh, that's about it. Uh, I started out playing music pretty early on. My family were very musical. We used to have these. Uh, Family, I've got a, several brothers who play and sisters who play music, and I was kind of surrounded by it. And we used to have these parties where we would come around, and all the neighbors would come in. We play all kinds of music, Irish music, traditional Beatles songs, whatever. There was never any delineation between forms of music. This, you know, we have to play Irish music or any, anything like that. And I, I grew up with that kind of spirit of music that it's just it's all it's all music. It's good. It's either good or bad. I started off playing guitar, started then going into piano. 
and started working as a professional musician in in Ireland. Played on you know a bunch of different things with different people. I played on the uh, soundtrack of the Commitments movie, which was actually Roddy Doyle who wrote the Commitments was uh, came from up the road from from where I'm I'm from. So you know that's kind of the that's the hood. Was was he a person? Was he a personal friend? I I've met him multiple times. I didn't know him before the commitments, though. I just I met him at the time we were doing the commitments movie. Um, actually, I started off playing, playing with a fellow called Rob Rob Strong, who's Andrew oh, Strong. Oh yes, yes, yes. Ah, brilliant singer. So that that was my kind of intro into playing playing gigs. And then uh, Andrew used to come come along and get up and sing and belt out soul songs when he was eleven or twelve, you know. And then fast forward a few years later, we were doing the commitments, and Andrew. Andrew was singing. I toured with Andrew for a long time. Then in 19, not quite as long as you, uh, Paul, a few years before, in 1997, I came over to uh, to San Francisco. I started working as a musician here and kind of stayed in the, that kind of soul R&B thing because it's a real healthy scene around the Bay Area with, with that kind of music. But at the same time, kept playing a lot of Irish music because there's a pretty vi- vibrant uh, Irish music scene here as well. Then a few years ago, I started kind of, you know, I've always been the session guy behind the scenes, behind the piano, but I started doing my own albums, like kind of putting out, writing a lot of songs and putting out my own music. So I did my, released my second album, uh, it was late last year, and I'm actually going in next week to the studio to to work on actually a couple of albums, an album of traditional kind of solo piano music semi-traditional i would say and uh an album of you know new songs that i wrote during the during the pandemic basically uh while i was locked down like everybody else a couple, a couple of cracking songs one um commemorating uh jack charlton because you, you met him yeah yeah i want you to tell me the story and, and, and if you can remember it because now that i know i can't i can't share the screen i had one of your songs lined up right. to play the video so it's not going to work but you can always I mean, sing it just pretend that you wrote the words uh, no problem um yeah so i wrote this song of, uh literally the day i i woke up and saw you know, the phone that jack 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 charlton died and i wrote a song about it called uh penalty shootout in the dockers because the, the the day uh, that ireland played romania uh, it was 1990 and we won the penalty shootout to go to the quarterfinals of the, the Italian World Cup, where we were ultimately beaten by Italy. Um, but I watched that game live in the Dockers pub in uh, down in uh, Sir John Rogerson's Key in, in Dublin. And it was quite an experience because like all these tough looking Docker fellas were like just couldn't take the drama of the penalty shootout and we're running out of the room and almost in tears, you know, <laughs> with, <laughs> with the unbearable uh, drama of what was going on. So, uh, and I actually met Jack in San Francisco. I was with my daughter. Uh, we went to, we were just going for lunch somewhere and, and Jack and his wife and another couple were, were just holidaying from, you know, from, from Ireland or whatever. And normally if I saw met a celebrity, I wouldn't want to bother them or just like, oh, there's so-and-so. But I had to say hello to Jack, you know, just like, come on. So, and he was very nice. He, I remember my daughter's name is Phoebe and he said, uh, Phoebe, that's a weird name. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a, we had a nice conversation. They were just on their holidays in, uh, you know, 
doing the usual, uh, seeing the hot spots, San Francisco, going around to uh, San Diego, LA, and then across to Las Vegas. So anyway, the day after he died, I wrote a song about it, and it was just a, it was the title of the song is uh, "Penalty Shootout in the Dockers." So I'm going to go into the studio this week and, and record that. On the 25th of June, in the summer of 1990, Packy Bonner from Donegal saved a piano from Timofti. Dave O'Leary lined up next, you could hear a pin drop. And grown men disappeared outside saying, I can't bear to watch. Time stood still for what seemed like it was eternity. Creamy yellow pints weren't touched and smoke rose up slowly. As foot touched ball, young Dave O'Leary barely broke a sweat. And he planted a real beauty in the back of Romania's net. I remember like it was yesterday and we haven't seen it again. Every dog, woman, man, child glued to the television. But I was with me green and orange and white down on the keys. Penalty shootout in the dockers. Come on, you boys in green. That year was the first time that we'd ever qualified. We'd usually draw with Bulgaria or Georgia and Jimmy McGee would cry. But then a Geordie came along. Didn't take no guff. And he said... Put them under pressure. Keep the ball, don't give it up. I remember watching every game. I remember all the ads. Magnum ice creams, Monaghan milk, automatic dows. But when we met in the Dockers on that fateful day in June, grown men were reduced to tears as Ireland took it home. I remember like it was yesterday and we haven't seen it again Every dog, woman, man, child glued to the television But I was with me green and orange and white down on the keys Penalty shootout in the Dockers, come on you boys in green When we got the news that dear old Jack had passed away like the Irish nation was reminded of that day. Every resident and emigrant across this spinning rock was transported back in time when we gave the world a shock. When Republic had four syllables, Jack gave it a lash. And ooh ah, Paul McGrath was haired neat to every tash. But when the end, Scalacci went and Ended all our dreams. I'll never forget Jack and the rest of the boys in green. I remember like it was yesterday and we haven't seen it again. Every dog, woman, man, child glued to the television. But I was with me green and orange and white down on the keys. Penalty shootout in the dockers. Come on, you boys in green. I remember like it was yesterday and we haven't seen it again Every dog, woman, man, child glued to the television I was with me green and orange and white down on the keys Penalty shootout in the dockers 
Come on, you boys in green. Just reflecting on, on present day, Eamon, I'm sure it's a clear day in San Francisco today, but you must have had the most horrendous week of all time. Uh, Wednesday, waking up to um, an orange-coloured sky. We have that on the 12th of July every year. But <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what was the whole experience like, and has it changed? Uh, it's, thankfully, it, you know, it, it didn't stop, really, like the... the well, the actual day, Wednesday, um, the sun just never came out. And I've never in my life experienced that before. It's, it's something you think you can depend on. That this, You know, a lot of things will change. Mm -hmm. But the sun is probably going to come out. <laughs> 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 the sun never came out. And it was, it was very, wow. uh, very eerie, very strange. Uh, I went, I had to go out and do some grocery shopping. And I... It was like driving at midnight, like at, at, mm. at noon. It was like driving at midnight, except it was an orange glow in the, in the sky. Uh, it was it, it was dark. Uh, I drove. I had to drive through uh, Golden Gate Park to get where I needed to go, and uh, you know the visibility was dreadful. Um, it was just a very very strange experience. I went on Facebook and did a Facebook live show. A, a bring the help to bring the sun up party <laughs> a bunch of songs to see could be including here comes the sun to see could be yeah. <laughs> here's the sun to come up uh, the, the, so the next few days the the, the uh, air quality has been horrendous so we haven't really been able to go out and today it seems a little bit okay I, I don't smell smoke so it seems okay but you know you're stuck in with the pandemic and you can't do that, and then you can't even go out of the house to, to go for a, a walk or anything. It's 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 pretty bad. What about what with you, Paula? Has there been much of that sort of situation? Yeah, actually, um, it's I can't even see out the window here right now. We have terrible smoke coming in from Eastern Washington, where there are a lot of fires, and uh, the air quality is at a super unhealthy level, and um, it's. Uh, it's like yesterday I woke up and it was kind of a yellow day. It just, I mean, it's amazing how the lack of light, I mean, you know, obviously growing up in Ireland or, or even living in Washington, we get long dark winters, but um, in the absence of the sun or just the, the light quality, it was so depressing. It kind of felt like being in a Cormac McCarthy's, you know, the road, it kind of felt, you know, the end of days. So, um, oh my gosh. so we, we have that for the next couple of days. I think it's going to clear by maybe Tuesday or Wednesday this week. Um, but it's, it's, you know, we thought our house was on fire um, when the smoke first rolled in on Monday. And, you know, it was like, it was at 10 o'clock at night. And, and then it was just this huge front. So it's, it's really, it's awful for all the poor people who are, have been displaced. And down in Oregon, 500,000 people have been evacuated out of their homes. So it's, and to concur, you know, with Eamon, that just with the pandemic and then, you know, and then this like climate situation it's really horrible so yeah a bit grim so it's nice to talk to you guys and see fresh air in the background um of your house at least uh um, donna i can see out the, i can see out in, in, in the street but um but it's, a, it's, it's a photoshop don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> actually actually um the sun doesn't come up uh in ireland and that's called uh winter 
Winter, yes. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, the, the biggest one that they were running, running past, the, the dystopian view, was Blade Runner. And you saw these pictures of Blade Runner, and you realised some of it was shot in a location that was based on San Francisco in the 21st or 3rd century. I mean, yeah. the, uh, just in the complete opposite. I mean, Stacey, you, you lived for many years in... in uh, in the Middle East, where, for goodness sake, if you saw a day where you couldn't see the sun, you'd have, you'd have paid good money for it. I mean, it's such a contrast. Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually remember, I lived in Qatar for a long time, and um, I remember the date in a, that it rained, <laughs> the actual day. <laughs> I actually remember the date. So that's, that's how rare rain was, and the sun always, always turned, although... Bizarrely, we had many, many days when the sky was orange, and that was mostly because of uh, sandstorms. And okay. so the air quality was really very, very bad as well. So, um, but yeah, you can always plan for barbecues. You can't really do that in the world. <laughs> no, not, not so much. And uh, Terry, you lived in the Middle East too, so I mean... So... I, I, just, I spent six years between mostly Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. I was in Doha last year. I'm waiting for a plane now to Saudi Arabia, believe it or not. I think I've got a job to go back Ooh. out. Wow. You'll, be, you'll, you'll be able to be freshly politically correct in every day when you're out there, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> I've always called a spear a shovel, but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and they never saw the sun for seven months after the Iraqi war. The, you oh, know, the, my goodness. I don't know if you saw that. Were you in Qatar at the time, Tracy? Uh, no, not then, but I have actually, I did some consultancy work up in Kuwait and um, yeah, I've heard some of the, some of the tales from them, yeah. They, they just uh, scorched earth to set fire to all the oil wells. They thought it was going to take years to put them all out, they did it in the set. So all the guys from Texas come out and did it. Uh, but amazing to hear people talk about that, like, you can't see the sun for seven months. Mm. It's incredible. Yamaha, yeah, just to move the subject slightly, you lived in that area. What made you come home? Well, I lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, on the East oh, Coast. Oh, Washington, D.C. I mixed up, I mixed up right. the Washingtons there. No, I was in the East Coast. You just, you just can't get the good staff here these days. Anyway. <laughs> I, I, uh, I worked for the federal government for uh, uh, 20 years. This is the only mention we're allowed of government in the USA. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's that? Yeah. What you, bet, that? You, you bet Terry had better leave. <laughs> he's he's, he's, he's no, teasing. We, we, we did our, I, I did my time there. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up in Donahadi uh, as, a, as a youngster. I uh, went to Regent House, and, um, but I'd always wanted to know if we could... Um, if, if I could live in the States. Um, and so we, uh, my wife and I, we, we packed up, we moved in the early, in the mid nineties and um, raised our kids there. The kids have all grown up and moved away. And so it came to the point where, where do we want to um, plan the next phase and, and, and consider, you know, uh, moving into retirement. And we decided we didn't want to be in America anymore. So we came back here. That, that, that man, oh yeah. That guy there is, uh, he's from Donaghy. Is he? Yeah. I, my, I, my think, family. I was going to say, I don't think he's still living, Terry. You'll not see him there today. He's a bit of a... <laughs> oh, uh, that, that's actually Donna where I got the Titanic disease from. 
Right. He, was, he was a bit of a hero in Belfast. George, uh, Manor Street, Donaghy. Right. Like 1850s sort of thing, shortly after the famine. That's close, there a little bit after that. It's close to Bangor, isn't it? It's six miles from six Bangor miles to Donaghy. Six miles. Mm-hmm. The song, you're you know, you were, uh, I'm, I'm building up for a song. James, you, yeah. you, you've, um, you've migrated in, in the opposite direction. You've come to, to the county of Kerry. What made you come to Ireland? For, from where, first of all, and, and, and why? From London. Um, I was, uh, in 89, I got married, and the plan was that Kathleen, who was the nurse, was going to move to London. And it was just at the start of the property explosion. Um, and we would have ended up living further and further away from London. I think we were looking at Bristol at one stage. And just one night at home, I, I said, well, what would happen if I moved to Ireland? And that was a time when all the traffic was going the other way. But similar to, to, to uh, what... Uh, has been said already it's, it's a thing about quality of life mm-hmm. now I, I came over here and i've done all my preparation work and i was working in the bank in london and all the banks here said you know contact us when you come over and i did and they told me that at 30 i was too old and too qualified <laughs> so i said i i i i look younger than i than i than i am and i'm quite thick really but apparently that didn't, that didn't work so after a few few uh, a couple of months and I thought I've made the biggest mistake I've ever made I'd literally written the, the letter back to my old boss saying you know it's all been a big big mistake I'm coming back will you take me back mm-hmm. and um, I was uh, asked to cover a um, holiday relief in Tralee Golf Club for two weeks. Uh, I knew nothing about golf, but I went down to the library. I learned everything in the morning uh, and I ended up staying there five years. Wow. In the library, that's a bit foolish. You should have gone home, but yeah. Well, you, you should have seen the fine I got. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then a, lo- a local building society manager was the captain out of the golf club and he said, would you like to come and work for me? And I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, that was the start of things. So I'm here because of my wife. Very good, yeah. We, I don't have anybody to blame anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I got plenty, I'll give you some. <laughs> one, uh, one of the, our paths crossed because of a, a group called Tangible Ireland. And they do um, a Zoom room with, with this and people from all over the world. And it's, it's promoting the idea of, of, of um, positivity and leadership, civic leadership and, and ideas of, of what's happening in Ireland. It's a kind of a supportive group and, and whatever. So James uh, joined that in um, the last two, I think. And um, I didn't hear enough in the sound thing, James. I lost the conversation halfway through your piece, or, or at the start of your piece, and only caught it in the last five, uh, five minutes. And I missed the, the joy of it, because you were telling the story of being a film star. You're a film star, or you've, you, you've moved into some way into acting. What, what, what's that story? Well, it, it, um, first of all, lucky you for missing most of it. <laughs> 
I, 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 um, there was a small advertisement in a paper uh, advertising that they were filming, doing a, a feature film here in Kerry. Now, to give you an idea how rare that is, there's been two films done in Kerry. One was Ryan's Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the second one was a film called Far and Away. Which uh, was the worst Irish accent ever from Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah. Well, you said that because his his lawyers might be listening. (laughs) (laughs) I think only seven people. Let me see. Is Tom Cruise's lawyer in the room? I doubt it very much. (laughs) Testing one, two, one, two. (laughs) So um, I I I applied and and um, they. I remember the poor the poor girl. She didn't know where she was uh, interviewing people in the in the venue. I knew the venue, so I helped her set up and I helped her come in. And um, for reasons beyond understanding, I got a letter saying, "Would you like, uh, you know, please come down to Park Nasilla, which is a beautiful part of South Kerry, um, for a costume fitting." Now the 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 awkward thing was that was the very week I was due to do jury service. So I said, well, could you give me a letter and I'll see if I can get off jury service. And they sent me this lovely letter saying James Finnegan has been uh, uh, selected to appear in a film with Colin Farrell and Olivia Coleman and John C. Riley. Oh, and I was, I was reading this letter and I didn't believe it. <laughs> so, um, when I handed it across to the court official, she read it and she looked at me and she read the letter again and she looked at me again. He's on to my agent. <laughs> and uh, out of disbelief, she, she gave me, uh, she gave me uh, leave from the jury service. So I spent two months filming with Colin Farrell and Olivia um, Holman and Rachel Wise and Ben Winslow, uh, who is the man who plays Q in the Bond films. Mm. Uh, and there, there was one glorious scene where, um, it's sorry, the film's called The Lobster. I don't know if you've ever seen oh. it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Bizarre okay. film. It's, <laughs> you should have been in it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um it's a pure Marmite type of film. You, you either love it or you hate it. But there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no middle way at all. But there was one scene where um, uh, I'm sitting uh, on a stage with all these Oscar winners and Golden Globe winners and BAFTA winners. And I turned to Colin Farrell and I just said to him, I am the only one up here I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that myself in this room. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a wonderful experience. And uh, it's unfortunately given me a taste for for hamming up in front of a camera Hmm. or uh, or on stage or indeed opening the fridge door. I'll give you a good five minutes back then. Yeah. So uh, it's 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 a wonderful experience and you get to play. And I, I was running through woods with a rifle playing cowboys with people and it was great great but if you ever if you ever get the opportunity to watch it you know don't watch it if you're feeling a bit down or anything like that 
but the basic story is that everyone gets to the age of 40 and if you're single you go to this strange hotel where you either hitch up with someone or they turn you into an animal of your choice (laughs) (laughs) that is so on my watch list now it really is (laughs) Can I, can I check out a trip advisor uh, for the page for the hotel by any chance? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, the hotel is beautiful. It's wonderful. But if they ever remake The Shining, <laughs> that will be where they do it. <laughs> it is, Here's uh, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. I did. I did go to look for it. I've written it down again. The lobster, <laughs> if only to avoid it. But I definitely will go and get and look at it and, and, and have a look and, and and hope the rest of you do too. Uh, we didn't mention about the song there. Uh, we're coming to you soon, Yamaha. Eamon, <laughs> <laughs> I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask him anyway. You wouldn't. You wouldn't give us a bar of a song there, would you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what you want to hear? It's kind of early. Oh, tell, tell, here's 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 what uh, what I loved. I mean, Eamon joined me on a radio program in San Francisco, and it was an absolute treat. Um, he's full of stories, and uh, he's full of stories, and I'm foolish. Oh, my microphone went there. But um, we we a, a bit of crack about. It, but you'd written these songs for the album, and Black Coddle had come out first. That's what I was going to to play. Some of the stories um, look back at, at 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 your your connection with Dublin and and some of the things that went on there. Uh, Black Coddle. Explain for those who don't know what Coddle is and and what Black Coddle and the songs about. And if you could, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I write a lot of songs about Dublin for some reason. Probably like a lot of, uh, you know, it, I seem to be obsessed about it when I go to write a song, but I don't live there. For some, so there's definitely a love-hate kind of relationship I have with, with Dublin. But Coddle was, um, Coddle is, is, is like our version of a stew, an Irish stew. We, it's, you basically make it with whatever's in the, in the house. And it's, you mean uh, you mean the children or the dog? <laughs> 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 but uh, it's usually like you you get some uh, rashers and sausages and you don't brown them. You just put it all into a pot with some potatoes and uh, water and onions and you know whatever carrots sometimes, and you just make a make a stew. And when it comes out, the um, the, the the rashers and sausages are are pale looking, so they're not very savoury looking. Uh, but it, it was great, you know. It's, it's a very Dublin, it's a uniquely Dublin thing. I don't think people we used the rashers and sausages because we were too poor to afford the the lamb and and the that they'd use down the country. You know, there's these these rich farmers and stuff. You know, and, uh, <laughs> so the black where the black coddle came in is where the the back in the, in the especially in the tenements in Dublin uh, in the early twentieth century they cook cook it under the, the chimney and smoke would come down. It put it on a fire, on a fire under the chimney, and smoke would come down, and it would coat the top with a layer of black soot that you'd have to that you'd have to scrape off before you'd eat eat the coddle. <laughs> so I wrote this song called "Black Coddle" as a really strange extended me- uh, metaphor for like Dublin history and how we maybe haven't lived up to all the um, all the ideals that some of the the um, the people who who. Yes, fought for, for Irish freedom. 
at various times of our history. Maybe we haven't lived up to all those ideals, like having equality for for everybody, uh, not having homelessness, um, all that kind of thing. And like as you you made a great point, Donna, and I was really interested in, it in the the conversation we were having earlier. Um, like Protestants played such a huge, and Presbyterians played such a huge part in in the history of Ireland in terms of both the cultural thing of, of keeping the Irish language and the Irish mythology and Irish uh, old stories going and, and the, uh, the actual fighting for, for Irish freedom. So it's, it's such a shame that it's become a sectarian, you know, became, somewhere along the lines it became reduced to a sectarian thing. And that's, I think that's one of the real tragedies of Ireland. I don't know how I got onto that subject, but anyway. That, that's, that's oh yeah that's the nature of the conversation but that 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 does, that, that still hasn't got you to sing um to sing well, okay. I'll, I'll see i'll see the chorus now let's see ashes to ashes dust to dust if god doesn't get you the devil must the black soot that gathers and makes a crust on the cuddle that sits on the fire tend to a room in a tenement flat jeez i haven't said this in a while <laughs> The scurry of rats. Oh, black cuddles in my soul. So that's the chorus. If you want to hear the rest, you'll have to check it out. <laughs> you have to buy his latest, latest CD, which yeah. is... You'll have to go buy the album, which is available online. <laughs> <laughs> At all your good stores. Now you can check it out for free online, I'm sure. It's Nobody buys the album anymore. It's four in the morning And I'm still awake The city is sleeping It's coiled like a snake Our Lady of Dublin Looks down on it all Horatio Nelson world is starting to fall it's starting to fall ashes to ashes dust to dust if God doesn't get you the devil must the black soot that gathers and makes a crust on the cone that sits on fire Tenement flat, the white lady's burnt face and the scurry of rats. Oh, black cuddles in my soul. My mind goes walking down dark streets whose names have all changed. Sackville to O'Connell, Calpua from Greg Lane. Some fought for freedom Some gave up their lives They were poets and teachers Shopkeepers, husbands and wives Oh, why did they die? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust If God doesn't get you, the devil must Blacks up the gathers and makes a crust 
next for you Paula I mean I mean COVID's going to restrict you from going anywhere virtually but I mean is Ireland very much soon on the on the on the horizon and is Northern Ireland on that horizon too? Yes um, uh, well uh, the exhibition was supposed to be in Ireland this summer um, and of course that got postponed to next summer um, I'm working with the Irish Heritage Trust and um, they are have offered me two different venues um, in their their portfolio uh, to show the work so um, we're planning to go ahead with that, and that'll be in June 2021. Um, I'll install um, it, the first iteration of it in County Roscommon at Strokestown Park House. Of course, yeah, the, the, the Famine Museum. It's a fabulous place, isn't it? Yeah, and I'll actually install it in the house. Um, my plan was to photograph, is to actually build it in the kitchen um, right. of this house. Yeah, and, okay. Um, and then, you know, so, so that'll be one venue, and then it'll also coincide with. Um, there's a, an annual famine conference. And um, so in, you know, all these intellectuals, um, academics all over the world come and there's a whole program about um, famine study. Um, so that would be really cool. And then after that, it's gonna to go to County Wexford to Johnstown Castle. And um, it'll probably be out in an outside installation there. And then I'm also in conversation with another museum in, um, in Ireland, the National Museum of Ireland has a venue in County uh, Mayo. And they similarly want to show it in a, a property <clears throat> on the property. So the idea of it being a traveling exhibition, as I'd like to try and show it in as many places um, in Ireland as possible. And um, specifically with uh, properties that have a connection to the famine. Because I think the work really kind of transforms when it's in a historic space. And I have a really good friend who's doing some scouting for me, like Skibbereen, like that is an amazing history there and you know, different places. And you know, ultimately, it might come back to. I hope it'll come back to America, unless you know somebody wants to buy it. 
um, which would be great. <laughs> but, um, but having said that, if it comes back to America, then I'd like to show it in other venues in, on the East Coast, Boston, New York. And then ultimately, if nobody uh, wants to purchase it for a museum collection, then I will actually, my plan B is, I have people who want to buy the potatoes individually. And what I, I had this idea that in the absence of it being going to a permanent home, I would disperse the potatoes, kind of like the diaspora. So people could mm -hmm. have their own memento mori and they could have it and it could go all over the world. Because that's not going to live in my basement because my husband will not allow it right now. <laughs> that's where it is. <laughs> and he's like, you know, you've got to do something with this. So, so that is, so, that, so hopefully it'll go public. I'm about Ulster and I'm really excited about showing it in the north of Ireland um, oh, for many me. reasons. Yeah. yeah, just to open that conversation and like they're talking about connecting, you know, with this, the school program, you know, as well, bringing it into schools and this way of this experience and also you know, delving into that and the idea of emigration and, you know, famine and in, in contemporary ways as well, you know, how that's such a huge, a huge topic, you know, there are famines happening all the time. So it's a great way to make that connection and kind of ties in what you were saying earlier, a few people were saying earlier in the conversation um, about it was, it was the whole island of Ireland was affected by it. Um, so it'd be great to kind of put it into that context and get conversations happening in Northern Ireland and make that connection. Um, so that's, that's the plan. So and, we'll see. Um, and, and in terms of San Francisco, I mean, have you already announced somewhere there or? No, not nothing yet, actually. And with Elizabeth and the, my my team, the D Department of Foreign Affairs is amazing. The guys mm -hmm. um, in San Francisco, the concert of Michael Tracy and yeah, probably. yeah, Michael and Robert, and um, mm -hmm. so you know they're all like you know maybe we could bring it down there. So it's just a matter of you know right now it's crazy trying to plan anything. You know, and museums are really struggling, and the last thing they want to do probably is commit to something. Um, but yeah, maybe on the on the west coast, I'd love to show it in San Francisco um, or mm -hmm. even Los Angeles. Um, and God knows where else. But anyway, so yeah, that's the start. <coughs> it's kind of uh, on a world tour. And, and Sharema will have a song written for you by um, <laughs> tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> well, I would be very interested in having a musical component um, that could be you know, presented with it. Um, I did have uh, an Irish politician, actually, um, who is no longer in the position. He's a, he's a composer as well. Um, and he had actually approached me about composing music to go with it. And then it, he just never followed through with it, so um, that's fine. But uh, but that would be quite beautiful, and um, that kind of connection between the two, something that would support it and enhance it as well. So you to I, to I, I told you, and I get you a gig out of this. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, so that's it. Oh, thank you very much, Paula. And Eamon, you're looking forward to your um, your next recording um, job in the next few days. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's funny, like the, the, so like, obviously the COVID thing is like, it, it really put it, because I, I was trying to promote the, the album I did, I released it in December and it was, you know, it was, it was going well, I was getting play on RTE actually in Ireland quite a bit and I was going to go over there and then this all happened so there were no, there's no gigs going on anywhere. I was going to yeah. set up a little tour there. Um, so, but interestingly, like it, it's kind of an opportunity to to just write and record new new music and get it ready. So next week, yeah, I'm actually working on two albums. Like one is um, all instrumental music, really a lot of Irish traditional stuff, but my own kind of interpretation of it, um, of just beautiful tunes that I grew up with and that just embedded themselves in my consciousness. Uh, and the other one is uh, all the the actual songs I've been writing since this whole COVID thing. So I'm, I've been recording, I record everything at home, but then when I 
want to get I want, want to have access to a nice Steinway piano and really good microphones just to record the vocals and the, the piano and I, I send things to people like I've got people in various countries some some in Ireland uh, I know some over here do sending tracks to me like I, I need Ilan pipes on one song and I get a friend actually a fellow called Todd Denman who's based here in San Francisco no he's, no 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 Todd yeah yeah, and like the last one I had Andrew McNamara and Claire did some accordion tracks for me and, uh, you know, various people. So it, it, unfortunately, we can't bring everybody into a, into a, a one room, which is the way I'd like to record an album. But this, this, these are the times, so we're just going to do it remotely for now. Best of luck with the work and continue Thanks. to do it. It's, it's fabulous. I love it, and that's a good one to finish on. Thank you, thank you all for for joining me. Um, I hope you got something out of it. I just thought it was great, so I don't care about Absolutely. the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm all right. If you excuse the mixture, but I'm all right, Jack, Jack Charlton, or anybody else. <laughs> and, and I hope that you join me again. And if you don't, it, I don't take it as a reflection of and. Uh, Maybe expanding the audience is, is one thing, uh, but just this kind of the intimacy of this, and just it's fabulous. Thank you, thank you, all of you. And uh, there used to be a race in our house in recent years when you were phoning somebody on Skype, and the conversation got to such a point you realized I've said all I wanted to say, and I certainly heard enough of what's on the other side. <laughs> Who's going to push the red button first? So <laughs> I get I get to push the red button uh, uh, from all of you. Just thank you all so much for for joining us. And thank you. Hope it was lovely home. meeting you all. Uh, yeah. you, you Paul and Eamon, good to see you and Terry, and lovely to see you too, James. And God, God bless you all. Lovely to see you. God, thank you. God bless. Bye bye. Bye. Here comes the red bye -bye. button. Bye. <laughs>